This evening we are looking at our final session in the book of Zechariah and we are doing Zechariah chapter 13 and chapter 14. This is speaking about the final day of the Lord and chapter 13 is speaking about how because of the rejection of the Good Shepherd when he came down to earth for first coming because the people rejected him this is going to lead to a final refining process where the remnant of Israel will eventually be cleansed and be restored. So we have looked at the different shepherds the last time and we looked at also how finally they will look on him whom they have pierced. So what is the future hold for the nation of Israel? The scripture in these two chapters speaks about how there's going to be a refining process, a refining process. And finally, and this is now all this is speaking about the end times, okay, the day of the Lord. In that final, before his coming, there's going to be that refining process. And finally, a small remnant from among them will definitely be saved. So in verse 1, you have the summary of this cleansing it says in that day a fountain will be opened and this will be for the house of david and for the inhabitants of jerusalem for sin and for impurity now if you notice there's a timeline that is mentioned for each of these events that will happen and primarily the same words are used the anticipated timeline is in that day in that day now in that day what will happen was one says a fountain will be opened a fountain that is prepared and provided by the lord and this fountain will remove the spiritual blindness from the hearts of the jews from the hearts of the israelites people who are now blind to the gospel blind to the fact that the messiah did come their eyes will be opened and God will the initiate a response because the beneficiaries of this fountain, if you notice, is mentioned for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for iniquity. So God will do this work. God will open up their eyes so that they recognize the truth and as a result, there will be a, a cleansing that will take place okay now but before that cleansing takes place there's going to be a judgment that's going to be in a taking place you know in verses 2 and 3 it speaks about that it says it will come about in that day again the anticipated timeline is the day of the lord what will happen the lord says i will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered there's going to be a radical purging of all idolatry in the land. If you notice, the children of Israel were sent into captivity primarily because they had started worshipping idols. And when they came back, maybe they didn't worship physical you know, images, but still, the fact that they did not really put God first in their lives, that definitely showed that they were worshipping idols. Even today, when you think of the land of you know, Israel. There's more of the Zionism over there, the state part of it, rather than belief in the Messiah. They're still thinking the Messiah would still come, 
But the scripture says in that final day, the Lord will open up their eyes so that they will no longer worship, you know, whether the state or whether the money or whether pleasure, whatever. They will no longer worship that, but they will worship the one true God. There's also going to be a radical purging of the false prophets. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. If you notice, there were two you know, <coughs> main areas of transgression for Israel. One was idolatry. The other one was false prophecy or false doctrine. Remember, false doctrine is always associated with false living or unclean living. So the Lord says, this is what I'm going to do. You know, there's a fountain that's going to come <coughs> that will open up their eyes. But before that, uh, there's going to be a judgment that is going to come. A judgment on anything that you have put first before God and also a judgment on all the false prophets. Now, you may wonder, you know, today there's so much of an you know, increase of false teachers today. What is God going to do about it? God says over here, this is what I'm going to do. In the last days, there's going to be a, a judgment, a purging of the false prophets. Next, it also says that, you know, and if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, you shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord, and his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. In other words, because these parents have now come to know the truth, if their child is still on the wrong track, <coughs> they are not going to condone it. There's going to be a radical support from the parents of the false prophets as well. In other words, this is something that only God can do. It is only God who can change the heart of the king. It's only God who can change the heart of the parent. It's only God who can work out these things. <coughs> so the scriptures are saying over here that even their names will be banished <coughs> so that they will be remembered no more. This is like a, a revival that God is going to do among his people, the nation of Israel, so that they would now recognize the one true God, the Messiah, and they will begin to acknowledge him as the Lord and Lord alone. Okay? Now, in verses 4 to 6, you know, it speaks about how now once the judgment comes upon these false you know, prophets, how they themselves will now try to you know, cover up you know, for what they have done so far. Okay? or cover up for their activities, cover up of their lifestyle. You know, when judgment comes in, they want to say, no, 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 we are not like that. We are like this, you know, we are okay. But that's what the false prophets are going to do. Again, anticipated time frame, verse 4, it will come about in that day. Remember, that day is the day of the Lord in that final judgment time. That the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will despise their role as false prophets. Whether they uh, genuinely understand that they have done wrong, so they repent, or in order to avoid punishment, like for example, the previous verse spoke about even the, the parents will not accept them, so as a result, they want to have acceptance, so they will despise what they have done or what they are doing. And also it says they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive, okay? In other words, they will disguise their appearance. 
but will say I am not a prophet, I am a tiller of the ground for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. They will even deny their occupation and one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, those with which uh, I was wounded in the house of my friends. In other words, here's a prophet, false prophet, who was putting on all this, whether it was clothing or today in different, different patterns, where they, uh, how they push themselves up to say, I'm the one, okay. They will say at that time, because there has been so much of judgment on the false prophet, they say, no, no, we are not like that, okay. Even to the point of denying their occupation or denying that they are a prophet, you know. They will also, it says, they will deny any past participation or they will say, we were never a prophet, we never did false prophecy. Then if somebody points out to them, remember in the, uh, the pagan culture, you know, they used to uh, hit themselves or wound themselves as part of uh, the rite, you know, of a worship. So these false prophets would have done that. Maybe they had marks on their body. And if somebody asked them this question, hey, you are saying you are not a prophet, you know, but didn't you do this? What are these marks? So they will immediately respond and say, no, 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 and I got hurt, you know. It's like, you know, somebody has you know, done something wrong and you, have, you see a mark on their body and you ask them what happened. They will say, no, no, I just fell down the steps, you know, or I just tripped over here. This is how I got this wound. So what they are really trying to say is they will try to cover up the wrong that they have done. Why do they do that? Why? Because they recognize there is the judgment of God. There is the judgment of God. Now, in verses 7 to 9, we find about a refining that the Lord will do. Now, we have asked this question earlier also, why does God keep the false prophets in a here on earth? It's part of the refining process so that the Lord knows who belonged to him. You know, why was there two you know, trees in the garden? Why could there not be only one? God keeps so that we have the option to respond, option to follow willingly. And here again, when you speak about the false prophets, God is telling us, you know, just as much as he kept the giants in the land, and you know, when God told them to enter into the promised land, he did not clean them out and give it to them. Why? Because God wants us to trust in Him. And as we continue to trust in Him, there's a remnant in the midst of all these falsehood, a remnant who has stayed true, and as a result, the Lord is the one who is going to keep the protection. So here's a good shepherd that comes along. Verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. I will turn my hand against the little ones and it will come about in all the land declares the Lord that two parts in it will be cut off and perish but the third will be left in it. In other words the Lord is saying yes judgment is going to come but the judgment is going to come on the two-thirds. That is the one-third, the remnant which is still going to be protected. And how do you find out which is the genuine, who is going to still stand firm? Strike the shepherd and the sheep is scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. It's only during the times of adversity that you know who really belong to him, isn't it? 
It's easy to say, Lord, I will follow you, you know, till the end of the ages. Lord, I'll follow you no matter what. I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. But as soon as a problem comes into your life, what is your question? Is your question, God, why did this happen? God, I'm going to stop following you. Or would your answer be like Job who said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That is how identification comes in. Identification comes in of a true believer, not when things are going fine. When things are going fine, everybody can say yes, yes, yes. But it's the bad times, tough times, problems. That's the time we decide whether we're still going to continue to follow or give up. Sad to say, a lot of people start their journey in their walk with the Lord. But when things get tough, as Jesus spoke about the sower and the seed, when things get tough, people give up. There's no more growth, there's no more life, and it dies, there is no fruit. That's why Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruit. As time goes by, it takes time for the fruit to be produced. But if a tree does not bear any fruit, the Lord will say, cut it down. It's of no use. So the Lord is saying over here, this is what is going to happen. And especially in these days that when we are living here on earth, when the uh, pressure keeps mounting, tensions are high, problems are high. The question is not, Lord, please take away all that. The question is, Lord, please help me to be firm in the midst of all that. Because I know you are the only one. There is no one else. And I determined to follow after you and you alone. So a remnant of Israel will be protected from destruction. That is what verse 8 says. Then in verse 9 it says, and I will bring the third part, that is the remnant, okay, through the fire, refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. Then will they call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. I wonder what is your response to this verse, verse 9. Okay. We want to say the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But the Lord is saying, I will bring them through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. If you want to be part of the remnant, the Lord says the remnant is the one that is going to go through this fire, the testing. But the Lord assures us that he is the one who controls the heat, so he knows you know, how much so that the dross is removed. And as they often say, when you are speaking about you know, a testing in the fire, gold and silver, when it starts shining, all the dross is removed so that you can see your face clearly. That is why you identify the job is done. When the Lord is able to see his face in our lives, when our lives are being transformed into his likeness and image, and that happens because of the refining process, then the Lord says, job is done. Because remember, that's the purpose for which Jesus has come into our lives, isn't it? Jesus has not come into our lives so that we can just get into heaven. Jesus has come into our lives so that we can be transformed into his likeness and image. And the process is through these hardships. He says, I will bring the third part through the fire. It's the Lord who does it. It is the Lord who does it. 
and when he does it the remnant who says i have decided to follow you no turning back the genuine ones you know they will call on my name and then i will answer and say they are my people and they will say the lord is my god in other words it's through the testing times that our relationship with god becomes much more stronger as job mentions isn't it when he says whatever may happen his wife said curse god and die but job responds and says no 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 even if he kills me i'm not going to you know give up how did that come about it's a refining process taking off all the dross and this evening that should be our heart's desire not just so that lord i want to follow you the question is lord i want your will to be done and i want your transformation to be done so that your very life would be seen in me and that is going to happen only through the refining process question is are we willing to go through that refining process then in chapter 14 which speaks about what's going to happen in that final final thing okay this is what god is done doing for the remnant okay and then you speak about the lord coming down to earth okay that's his second coming establishing his kingdom the triumphal return if you were to say of the warrior king because the king now is going to establish his kingdom the king is the one who is going to fight for his people the promised messiah will return as the triumphant warrior king to defeat israel's enemies and then to usher in the millennial kingdom and just as god fulfilled his promises his prophecies concerning the first coming into the world more than 300 prophecies fulfilled to the dot the lord has also said he will come again there are signs of his coming that he has mentioned in the day of the lord and the lord says as much as the first coming was fulfilled the second coming would also be fulfilled so verse one it says behold a day is coming for the lord okay now there's a difference over here if you notice so far we have been speaking about the day of the lord the day of the lord is a time of the judgment but here it's speaking about the lord will have his day okay it is his day of rescuing you know behold a day is coming for the lord this will be the lord's day it is for his benefit okay this is something that he will do you know it is not for us it is for the lord in other words you know when we are speaking about creation we speak about paradise lost paradise regained we speak about how god created the world how sin entered of how he redeemed us and how he is going to come back again but remember all this is all about god it's not about us we are his creation in the beginning god okay it starts off with god so we must have a god centered theology not a man centered theology it's not a question of what is in it for me it's a question of god this is your plan how can i fit into that but often times we take it the reverse way isn't it or the opposite way <coughs> when often times life is all about us when something happens we say why because we are saying it's about us but when we look at life from god's perspective whatever happens we are not asking the why question we are asking the question about 
God, you have put this here, you have made this happen, you have a purpose. Identify the purpose, follow through with that purpose. So behold, a day is coming for the Lord. It is God who has started it. It is God who will also going to end it. So this would be the Lord's day in which he would do his will in contrast to man's day in which man conducts his affairs without divine interference. Today, if you notice, you read the papers, there's nothing about God in that, isn't it? You look at events in history, people are all talking about what I did, what I want to do. And all the time, people are only speaking or thinking about what they can accomplish in life. Very few people talk about, talk about what God wants them to accomplish. But we must remember, our theology must not be a man-centered theology. Our theology must be a God-centered theology. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. A, first of all, a terrible day of de devastation for Israel, where Jerusalem is plundered. When the spoil taken from you, latter part of verse 1, will be divided among you. God will be the one who initiates this action of judgment from the nations to Jerusalem. Okay? It's like first there's a destruction, then there's a building up. It's like a redevelopment process. First the building is knocked off and then a new structure comes in. So the Lord says, this is what the day of the Lord, the day for the Lord will be. First, there's going to be a, a removing. First, there's going to be a destruction. So, here it says the enemies, the Lord is the one who's going to allow the enemies to sit down casually, leisurely, divide the spoil from Jerusalem, okay? Thinking they have won the battle, you know. This is the imagery, okay? If you want to picture it, here is uh, the nation, you know, of Israel totally defeated and the enemy thinks they are the conquerors now they're discussing about you know what to separate where to separate okay it's like you know when Jesus died on the cross they said everything is over so the soldiers are casting lots to divide the spoil divide the garments you know and then finally the Lord returns isn't it you know resurrection happens you know now, this is a similar thinking over here. When people are thinking it's all over, Jerusalem is all over, they thought, you know, we are going to, uh, Jerusalem thought that we are going to be the victors, but now they have been defeated. In this hopeless state, then Jesus will return to the earth. Okay. Look at the judgment. You know, it is initiated by the Lord. It says, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city in will be exiled, and the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In other words, the Lord is never in a hurry, but he's never late also. He comes at the right time. When you and I think a situation is hopeless, you know, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites here now. When such an event is happening, they think that God is going to be on their side, that there's going to be the victory, the Messiah will come, establish his kingdom. Now they've lost everything, they're sitting down and are wondering what's next. But at that moment, the Lord comes in and fights for them. Remember, never give up. 
continue to trust in God. The Lord is never in a hurry. There is no delays with God. There is always the right timing and we have to be open to his timing. It says, then the Lord will go forth, verse 3, and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. When? When everything is hopeless. Then the Lord will fight. Now, oftentimes we like to think of the, the, the thought that God is the one who fights our battles. Yes, God is the one who fights our battles. But before he fights our battles, we have to come to the point in which we are able to say, Lord, I'm hopeless. I can't do this. Remember Gideon's army, it had to be brought down to 300 so that the trust is not in the army, but the trust is in the Lord. Oftentimes when you say the Lord will fight the battles, then we are saying, I'm going to fight, you know, and we put all our efforts into it. You know? The Lord says, no, when you're in that state of saying, I give up, I have tried everything, nothing has worked out, Lord, I trust in you and you alone. That's where then the Lord says, then the Lord will fight for his nations. <laughs> okay? Then in verse 4, it says, there is going to be a supernatural upheaval centered around the Mount of Olives. In that day, remember again, this is the day of the Lord, this is the day for the Lord. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half towards the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now, the Lord says, in that day, when people have said, Lord, it is over. The Lord says, in that day, I will come in. I will come in. I will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, this is the time of the Lord coming back to establish his kingdom. Now remember, this is another rapture. Rapture can take place anytime. Remember, this is the Lord coming to establish his kingdom. Okay? He says, on that day, the Lord comes from the heavenly court. The Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And when he stands on the feet of the Mount of Olives, there's a separation of that Mount itself. Okay? There's a separation of the mount itself. Now, when the Lord returns, okay, there's going to be great joy. Why? Because the Lord will not make his appearance alone. It says, the scripture tells us, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So, the prophet declares over here, there's going to be great joy at that time because the Lord will come with the holy ones, with the angels, with the people who have gone on before us, the saints of God, the believers, they will all come together to establish God's millennial kingdom. In 760 BC, Judah was struck by a gigantic earthquake, which is recorded in Amos chapter 1 and verse 1. And Josephus, the historian, said this happened when Uzziah walked into the temple as a high priest. And 250 years later, Zechariah refers to that stupendous earthquake. So he's saying, hey, just as much as, remember 250 years ago this happened? You know, there's an earthquake that happens. Now, 
so many years later down the line, when the Lord himself will put his feet on the Mount of Olives, there's going to be such a major earthquake. And some of the signs of his coming is also the earthquakes. And people, as they often say, the number of earthquakes has increased over the years. But this is going to be that final earthquake, you know, when this mountain is going to be split up and the Lord himself will descend on that mountain. And the Lord will come with the holy ones with him. So that's going to be great joy at his final appearing, final coming. Now that date will be unique. It will be unique in many, many respects. Verses 6 to 11 gives us in what areas this is going to be unique. First of all, there's going to be unique illumination. There's going to be a special lightning, a special lighting as well as special darkening effects. But verse 6 and 7 says, in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Okay, at evening time, when it's dark all around, you know, it will still be light. Since light is necessary for the alternation of day and night, this single unique day will also be without daytime or nighttime. And when evening comes at the end of this lightless, unmarked day, there will be light again. There will be light again. Now remember, these changes, you know, will happen on a day only known to the Lord. And this will signal, if you were to say, the end of this world as it has been running for all these years. As the scripture says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Okay? This is what God said when he created the earth. Okay? And if you notice, you know, when it says now, this day and night is going to be removed. Okay? Why? Because the scripture says the Lord himself will come and dwell among his people. He indeed is the light. Then verse 8, there's also going to be unique provision. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. These four rivers flowing out of the Garden of Eden are also part of the biblical background of verse 8 over here. Remember, the temple had a large source of standing water, the bronze sea, and the city had one constant spring that flows to the city. And Zechariah has already promised a cleansing fountain flowing from the temple in the previous chapter. And this, on the Lord's day, when he appears again, two rivers of living water will flow out from Jerusalem. In the land of Israel, most rivers flow only during the winter rains and dry up in the summer. But these waters will flow constantly in summer and in winter. Half will run to the eastern sea, the Dead Sea, and half will run to the western sea, the Mediterranean. And the elimination of darkness and drought, these forces of death will maximize the productivity of the land and promote life. So the Lord says there's going to be a whole changeover. There's going to be a changeover. There's going to be life. There's going to be growth, you know. Because there's going to be a plentiful supply of his provision. Then in verse 9, it speaks about how the Lord will be king over all the earth. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name 
the only one. So that's going to be a unique God. No more worship of any other gods. There's only going to be one. So the prophet states here clearly two core beliefs about God that are central and constantly pervasive in the Old Testament and in the scriptures that the Lord is king and that the Lord is one. The Lord is the one who is sovereign. There is only one God. And this is what will be the experience during the millennial period. Verse 10, there is also going to be a change in a uh, topography. You know, there is going to be a change in the uh, situation you know, of the earth. You know, what is going to happen? Remember, the uh, mountain is going to be split up. What is going to happen on the land? You know? All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine press. Okay. So it says over here primarily every area outside Jerusalem will all be brought into a plain and then it's only Jerusalem will be lifted up. Okay. So this final word that is mentioned here in verse 11, when this happens, try and picture this, the Lord himself descends on Mount Olives and then you have separation of that mountain, then you have all surrounding areas like you know, are brought low, they are all the mountainous areas or all the other areas have become into a plain flat. Jerusalem is lifted up, everybody can see that. You know. And then in verse 11 it says, people will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. When is there a security? If the Lord is among us, isn't it? That's the key for the security. Now the Israelites, nation of Israel is fighting for their land and going this way, that way. The Lord is not among his people because they are not recognizing that he is the Messiah. But once he comes in, once their eyes are opened, once the Lord establishes kingdom, then that is where the security really is. Simple principle when you're thinking about the storms of life. If there are storms of life and he's with you in those storms, that is where you get your security, isn't it? Think of that in an in a incident where the Lord comes walking you know, on the sea, when the, there's a storm in the sea, Disciples are in the boat, wondering what to do. Peter sees it. Only Peter steps out. You know. Now, Jesus is on the sea, in the storm. Peter walks out, assured that Jesus will look after him. The disciples, none of them were willing to do that. They would rather be thinking they are safe in the boat. But in a storm, it is not to be safe in the boat. It is safe to be where Jesus is. So when Peter started sinking, there was somebody to lift him up, isn't it? Now that's the assurance that God gives to us. Yes, there will be storms of life, but remember Jesus is there with us in the midst of those storms. That is what gives us our security. And then in verses 12 to 15, it speaks about how the Lord will strike the attackers of Israel with a divine plague, you know, with a divine plague. Look at the plague that is mentioned over there. It is divine in origin because this will be the plague which the Lord will strike, verse 12. It is He is the one. 
He is the one who is going to fight for us. Yes, he is the one who starts the plague. It is going to be comprehensive in scope because all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem will be affected by this plague. Okay. That's what the Lord says, you know, don't touch my anointed, basically God's going to protect, you know. It also speaks about this battle is not yours, this battle is mine, you know. That's the assurance that God keeps giving when we are willing to put our trust in Him because He is the one who fights for us. Verse 12, it also speaks about, you know, uh, the plague is described, you know, their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets, their tongue will rot in their mouth. <laughs> Look at the words that I use there. Look at the description of the judgment that God is going to put upon the enemies of his people. Then verse 13, it speaks about it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Now, this is a thing that has happened in the Old Testament times, isn't it? When the Lord brings about confusion, so far all the nations of the earth came together to fight against Israel. Okay, The Lord came in, fought for them. Now there's going to be confusion of all these nations which are all together. Now there's confusion and then they fight among themselves. You know, and it's only Israel which is united because that's where the victory comes in. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also like this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps. In other words, the Lord is saying, I'm going to affect just as much as he did it when they were in Egypt, when judgment came upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians because they refused to let the people go. Similarly, the Lord says, in the last days, all the enemies will have to face the wrath of God. Okay? And this is how it says it is going to happen. Now remember, you know, these are events that are going to take place. The Lord has given us a glimpse into the future, knowing that this is all how it is going to end. That should give us the security that God is the one who is in control. Then the final verse speaks about how the Gentile nations in the Millennial Kingdom will worship the Lord in Jerusalem at the Feast of Boots. Okay. Now, in other words, there's going to be in a, a unified worship. Here were the Jews, now the remnant. And now the Gentiles, you and I, who have believed in Him, there's going to be a united worship of God during this millennial period. And those individuals are saying, hey, we don't want to do that. There's going to be judgment and consequences. Now, participation in the Feast of Tem uh, Tabernacles is uh, emblematic of inclusion in the people of God. The feast has many aspects of significance in the Old Testament. First of all, it acknowledges the Lord's provision of food. It is called as the Feast of Ingathering. In Exodus 23 and verse 16, after gathering grain and grapes. Secondly, <coughs> its purpose is to commemorate the Lord's provision for Israel in the wilderness when he brought them out of Egypt. That's what Leviticus 23 and verse 43 tells us. Thirdly, <coughs> this festival is associated with temple building. 
Solomon's temple was completed in the seventh month and the people celebrated its dedication at the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what we read in 1 Kings chapter 8. <coughs> Centuries later, Joshua and Zerubbabel set up the altar at the temple site in Jerusalem. And then the people again celebrated this Feast of the Tabernacles. That's what we read in Ezra chapter 3. Fourthly, Deuteronomy 31 calls for the reading of the law every seventh year during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And following Ezra's reading of the book of the law at the beginning of the seventh month, the people set out to obey the command to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what we read in Nehemiah chapter 7. And finally, <coughs> the eschatological observance of this feast gives the ultimate answer to the pilgrim's question about fasting. Remember in chapter 7, the question arose from these individuals to say, should we fast now? The fast of the seventh month will become a joyful and glad occasion and a happy festival. This is what the Lord told them in Zechariah chapter 8. For Judah and the whole world, this is what is going to happen. So this participation in the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, was primarily saying that we rejoice. What you have promised has happened. What you said is true and we are worshipping you for who you are. Remember there is going to be living water that flows through the temple and the scripture speaks in John chapter 7 verse 38 and 39. Whoever believes in me as the scripture said streams of living water will flow from within. So this is what the Lord says it is going to happen. Okay. Verse 16, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them, or basically no provision. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And the scripture says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. If a guy says, I am not going to do it, oh, these are the consequences. These are the consequences. Finally, in verses 20 and 21, we speak about how it's going to be a total consecration to the Lord. This is what God has done. He has won the victory. He has come back again. He has established his kingdom. Praise and you know, glory be to God alone. And in that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. These horses were used for war. Now the Lord says, hey, there's no more war going to be there. It's going to be peace. So as a result, these horses which were used for warfare, now they have been consecrated, if you were to say. They have been dedicated to God. They are dedicated to God. And also, even the vessels, even the vessels, you know, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. Every cooking pot. Okay. Basically what it's saying is, it will be a set-apart place. It will be a set-apart place. It's going to be a place only for God's 
people and there will be no longer any Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts at that time. No un, uh, unholy heathens will be allowed here. When God establishes his kingdom, it is for his people. Now the Bible doesn't give us you know, more insight into the thousand year rule, into the millennial rule. People have so many questions, thousand years, what will happen? Will there be people who live and die? Will there be people who can respond to the gospel, not respond? So many questions are there, but the Bible doesn't give us any of those answers. The Bible only says he's going to establish his kingdom. And that kingdom is only for that remnant who belongs to him. So if it is, that is the case, there's no opportunity, if you were to say, for anybody else. Okay? And then finally, when that period is over, you know, then the Lord himself will turn all these things through. The new heaven and the new earth comes in. And then that is what eternity is all about. So this is God's plan for the ages. This is God's plan for the world. This is God's plan for you and me. The question would be, would we be part of that remnant who say, Lord, I believe, I trust in you, I'm going to stay with you true till the very end. And as we see all the events happening, don't get worried, don't get perturbed, don't ask questions, say, Lord, why are all these things happening? Hey, the Lord has already said, this is what will happen before he comes back again. So look forward for his coming. And as the book of Revelation closes and say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Let, let that be our prayer, looking forward for his coming. Because the scripture says, if we have this hope in us and thus looking forward, we purify ourselves even as he is pure. Couple of application questions as we close this evening. Number one, how excited are we to tell others about the availability and sufficiency of God's fountain of mercy and forgiveness and cleansing? How excited are we? How keen are we? You know the end of the story. People are wondering, how is it all going to end? You and I have the answers. How excited are we to share with them? Number two, how serious is God about disciplining and refining his own people so that they are devoted to him in purity and loyalty? God is serious about it. Do we recognize his seriousness that he wants us to be purified like silver and gold is purified? Would we allow him to purify us? Number three, what can we learn in this passage about making our boast in the Lord? Remember, it's not about us. It is about the Lord. Number four. Why would the Lord send heathen nations against his people and then return personally to defeat those same nations and rescue his people? Now, these are questions that people will ask and say, it doesn't make sense. Some people may ask this question in another format. Knowing that God, man is going to send, why did God create the world? You know? Knowing that this will happen, why did God do this? You know? Now that is God's plan, that is God's way of functioning. You know? What can we learn from that? But you know, What can we learn from this truth that wherever there is sin, it is going to be punished, whether among the heathens or among the believers. You know? Number five, when in history has Jerusalem been able to dwell in security? Has there ever been a time 
when Jerusalem, nation of Israel, has been able to say, hey, now we are relaxing, you know. No, it's going to happen only in that final time when he establishes his kingdom. So let's look forward for his coming. Let's prepare ourselves for his coming so that it happens anytime. We are not caught unawares, but we are ready. Let's bow our heads in prayer together.